Well, we start uh, this morning a new series in the book of Samuel. In our Bibles, Samuel is divided by, uh, into two, first and second, or one Samuel and two Samuel. But historically, it was just one book. Historically, it was just a book of Samuel. It got broken up because it just so happens in those days uh, when books were written in scrolls. That scrolls had a limit of how big they could be. So traditionally, although it's considered to be just the one book, we have it in our Bibles as 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. In fact, there is even some scholars, some academics that think that the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings would be a part of this great uh, collection of the story of how the people of God transitioned from the time of the judges to the time of the monarchy. And that is very much in this introduction, in verse 1 to 8, the, the situation that we are looking at. It wasn't the greatest of times for the people of God in those days. They were really, really struggling in their national life. It was the days of the judges. The conquest of the promised land ever since they have come in in the days of Joshua was still ongoing, was still very much that, a promise. The Philistines were still raging and raving and, and, and a menace to the nation. And the book of Judges, if you would turn just one page back in your, in your Bibles, or Ruth is before, the, if you would turn just a few pages back in the book of Judges, in chapter 21, verse 25, we see how the, 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 the situation was. It ends on this rather gloomy note. It says in verse 25 that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The horrors of the, the last few months and years that are recorded for us in the last chapters of the book of Judges show just how dire and how desperate the situation was in, Israel, in this time. That Israel was in this desperate situation because they lacked spiritual uh, uh, holiness, because they lacked as well proper leadership. And the history, the subsequent history of Israel proves this point. The lack of proper leadership always leads to problems. The lack of a king, in this case, a right, the lack of any king, was preventing the, the nation from flourishing. And there is this need to have a king. That, was the, that is the recurring th refrain in the book of Judges. Time and time again, we hear as we, or we read as we read through the book of Judges, there was no king. There was no king in Israel. And there is this hope in the nation that a king would come. And this hope is not just in the days of the Judges. This is a hope that is bound to a promise from the Lord. When God covenanted with, with Abraham, the father of Israel, he said to him, 
that he would be a father of kings. Genesis 17, 6. There is this promise. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. When Jacob uh, was speaking to his children, uh, he says that the scepter, the, scene, the sign of regal authority, would not depart from Judah. There was this collective yearning and this collective hope in the nation of Israel that they would have a king. In fact, as Moses gives the law to the, to the, to the Israelites uh, in Deuteronomy 17, already back then there was provisions being made with regards to the king. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So there is this sense already even in the, in the days of the, of, the, of the exodus leading up to the, re, re, to the conquest of the promised land, that the people wanted a king. The righteous and the unrighteous in the days of, uh, of, of Samuel wanted to see a king installed. And this is very much the central theme of this book, one of kingship. Who is the Lord's king? The collective yearning. Give us a king. We want to see the kingdom of God installed. Is here present. But if Israel is to have a monarchy. If Israel is to have a king. There, are, there is a need to have proper checks and balances in place. There is a need for said mon monarchy to be held accountable. And this is where Samuel comes in. Samuel, the last, you could call him the last of the judges or the first of the prophets, of that great office of, prophet, of being a prophet. The birth of Samuel is the beginning of a new chapter in the life of the nation. Just as God in the past uh, or had done so many great things by calling people uh, to serve him, now God calls this Young man, Samuel, just as the Lord would later prepare Israel to receive the Messiah, just as the Lord would raise up uh, John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord, here the Lord sends Samuel to prepare the way for the monarchy to be installed. Samuel is the first of a great line of prophets who served during Israel's kingdom. Samuel is in this transitional period between the, the time of the judges and the time of the monarchy. And it is with Samuel that eventually the house of David, the great King David, is established. It is with Samuel that eventually the worship of God, Jehovah, is brought to Jerusalem. And the historical significance of Samuel is seen by the fact that God gives us a proper introduction to him in this book. It, it's evidenced by the fact that he is introduced to, his, to the readers of Samuel with a birth narrative. 
you know there are exceptions to this rule, but you know that you are about to see the introduction of someone special in the purposes and will of God in the Bible when you have a birth narrative. We see this, don't we? With Jacob, with Isaac, with Moses. They, had, they were introduced in the narrative with a birth narrative. You really want to introduce how they came into the world. We see this with Samson. We see this with John the Baptist. And most especially, we see this with our Lord Jesus Christ. We are introduced to the family of Samuel before we are introduced to Samuel. So who, who, who is the family of Samuel? We read in verse 1 that there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And here you must cast your mind back to the, to the chronology of all of this, you come to the book of Samuel after just having read the book of Judges. If you're reading the Bible for the first time, if you're a, a, an Israelite tr trying to get to terms with the, the history of your people. And you've been predisposed with this sentence in the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. And you come to the book of Samuel... And you read, now there was a certain man, and you were left to wonder, is this the king that, was, that is to come? Is this the one? Is this the one that, that, that is the man who will be king in Israel? It quickly becomes apparent that it is not. But the book of Samuel is about the man, or the beginning of the book of Samuel is about the man who will introduce who will pave the way to the king according to God's own heart. So who is this certain man? We are told he is Elkanah, a man of, uh, of standing, a man of, of a good family, his genealogy tells us. He is from Ramathaim, Zophim. We are told by, by some commentators, I was reading, that some commentators think that this Ramathaim, Zophim, is the same city that in the New Testament is called Arimathea. There is a certain sense that the words do match, right? Ramathaim, Arimathea. Samuel's hometown is later called Ramah. It was about eight miles north of Jerusalem. We read from the lineage of, of Elkanah that he was a Levite. He was a Nephraimite. That he, that he was from the family of priests. And Samuel would later become a priest. So he is a, a Levite. If you would turn, we won't go there now, but if you would go to the book of Chronicles, chapter 6, 22 to 28, and then 33 to 38, you can look this up uh, at home. You have the genealogy there of Samuel. He was from the, the family of Kohath, the Levite. So Samuel is the descendant of the priestly line of Levi. He is from a very devout family. We read in verse 2 that, that he is from a family that goes to the temple, that goes to the tabernacle, that performs their religious duties. But he is also a member of a very divided family. 
a devout and yet a divided family. Although Elkanah is introduced to us first, he is not the main character of this first chapter of Samuel. Anna is. Hannah, his first wife, is introduced to us in verse 2 as having no children. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this casts our mind back, doesn't it? Again to the book of Judges. You remember how Samson's family is introduced. Very much the same language. Judges 13 verse 2 says, Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. You see, we are meant to see this. We are meant to look at the first, uh, of the first book of Samuel, the chapter 1, and see the parallels with the book of Judges. See the transition that is about to take place. Samson and Samuel share a lot in common. In fact, they might have been, according to some, even contemporaries. They might have had a period of overlapping in their lives. Matthew Henry says this. The story of Samson introduces him as a child of promise. But the story of Samuel introduces him as a child of prayer. Samson's birth was foretold by an angel by, to his mother. Samuel was asked of God by his mother. Both together intimate what wonders are produced by word and prayer. Samuel's family was both devout and divided. They were a well-off family. They had a good pedigree. They, they were from a, uh, 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 an excellent caste. They, they were probably a, a family with means as well. As we see that Elkanah had two wives. So they were probably wealthy or well off. But yet we are told, aren't we, that in spite of all these good things, that this family had to go uh, for it, there is a, a trouble brewing in the home. Hannah had no children. Penina had children. And perhaps this is the reason why Elkanah had two wives. He married Hannah first. Year after year, month after month, no child came. And then he took a second wife so that he would have uh, a child so that he would have heirs to, to his family so that his name would go on and there is an, a need for me to address uh, here the issue of polygamy in scripture you see polygamy having multiple wives in this case it's not polygamy it's bigamy having two wives the polygamy was never uh, the norm, was never authorized by the Lord. The design of marriage, as our Lord Jesus uh, restated in, in the New Testament times, was one man and one woman. Polygamy, having multiple wives, was uh, a declension, as the Puritan Andrew Willett uh, called it, a disease an infirmity. He says the following. 
that polygamy, having multiple wives, was a human infirmity in the fathers. To take unto them two or more wives and such marriages were, were not without great inconveniences, for there was continual emulation between them, as between Sarah and Agar, Hagar, Leah and Rachel, and here between the two wives of Elkanah. What Andrew Willett is saying is that it was a human disease. It was not good. It was an infirmity. It was sin to have multiple wives. It was never designed by God. Uh, marriage was never designed by God to be one man and multiple wives. One man, one woman. Andrew Willett goes on to say that although, oh, and he, he mentions it, the first person in, in Scripture to have uh, more than one wife was Lamech, the son of Cain. So you see the cursed, the seed, the cursed lion of Cain is already the one that introduces this sin of bigamy, of having multiple wives. But Andrew Willett was, goes on to say that it pleased God to wink at this infirmity and to tolerate it in the, the fathers in, the, in, the, in Israel till the Messiah came when no longer the church of God should be tied unto the people of the Jews, but spiritual children should be begotten unto God from all nations, even from among the Gentiles. It is not inconsequential that when you see, wherever you see in Scripture, multiple wives, there is always trouble. Andrew Willett mentions Sarah and Agar, Rachel and Leah, you look at the kings of Israel, David, having multiple wives brought him trouble, Solomon, and the idolatry that came afterwards. It is not the design of God, and clearly when this happens, you see the displeasure of God. So in this home in Ramah, the, in Ramah, the problem was already brewing. A devout family, if not... At, at least in the externals, they went to church, they went to the temple, they, they performed the sacrifices every year, and they were formal in their, in their way of serving the Lord, but they were divided. There was a, a, a divided uh, thrust. There was a part of the family that wanted to go this way. There was a part of the family that wanted to go that way. And that is a tragedy. The problem here was because our, uh, Hannah was barren, had no children, and her rival, Penina, had many children. Oh, Hannah had all the trouble and affliction of being childless in a day and age when women were very much seen as childbearers as their main function. And though it would not comfort Hannah in this point, we would do well to remember that Hannah is not the first barren woman noted in Scripture. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, she was barren. She had no child. You'll turn to Genesis 25, and you look at the mathematics of of. Uh, of Rebecca's uh, marriage, and he realized that she had no children for the first 20 years of her marriage. 
And yes, now it's normal for people to get married and maybe only to start thinking about having children five and ten years down the road after getting married. But that was not the case in the days that we are talking of. You would be expected to, be, to start having children as soon as you get married. We see that with Rachel. We see that with Manoah's wife. And if you look forward, not just back in the history, if you look forward, we see that with Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. Barren women seem to be God's instruments in raising up key figures in the history of the, of the, of the nation of Israel, in the history of redemption. Whether it is Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, Anna is just one more woman in this fellowship, as one commentator calls it, of barren women. It is frequently in this fellowship that God acts mightily. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Oh, this woman has no ability to have children. That's where he starts to work. So that no one is left to wonder if it was produced by the strength of the flesh or if it was of God. The Lord loves to use hopeless situations. He loves to pick up helpless in situations and show that there are no barriers to do his work. That's how Lord, the Lord works. Hannah's barrenness was not only an emotional or family problem, it is a threat as well. To go back to this situation, it is a threat as well to her spiritual understanding of how she fits in the history of the nation. You know the first promise in the Bible uh, about the Messiah to come is that, that it would be a seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. So every woman... After Eve had this wonder and this question in her mind when, when she was bearing, is this the seed that will crush the serpent's head? You remember when Noah is born, what, is Noah, what does Noah mean? Rest. That was the collective yearning of every woman, every man as well, of, of, in the history of the nation of Israel. And before Israel in this case. Is this the seed? Is this the one who will bring me rest? Not only that, and, but after the promise of God to Abraham, saying that in, in his seed the nations of the world would be blessed, the fact that you as a woman and as a man as well, the fact that you as a, a human being cannot have no children, it, it means that you can have no part in the blessedness of the nations. Because it's through the, the, the multiplying, it's through gen, genera, human generation that the, the nations will be blessed. If the Lord closes the womb of your wife, if the Lord does not allow you to have children, you are essentially and practically cut 
cut off from being a, a part of that blessing to the nations. So it is a dire situation that Anna was going through. And to add insult to injury, she had a rival that mocked her, that provoked her day in and day out, especially every year when they came to offer sacrifice. Verse 3, this man went up from the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the sons of Eli, Hophni, and the priests of the, priests of the Lord were there. We'll talk more about the sons of Eli and at a further time. But every year, when Denver time came, verse 4 says, for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons. But to Anna, he would give double portion, for he loved Anna, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Oh, the agony of being childless was compounded in Anna's case because of the implications of what it meant regarding the Lord's provision. We are told, are we, twice. It was the Lord, it was God that closed the womb. But the, the situation was made so much worse by what was happening in the home. Penina taunted her. Penina provoked her. She made her life a living hell inside of the home. Had Anna and Elkanah been just both of them with no children, probably things would have been easier. Not probably, certainly things would have been easier. They would have ordered their life around the fact that they had no children, just like Manuel and his wife. But with Penina and her children constantly before her eyes, every time you sat, put yourself in, in, in Anna's shoes, every time you sit at the dinner table, you're reminded again, aren't you? Of your miserable condition, of your wretched state, what lot she had. We consider, don't we? That when we are in trouble in, in the workplace, when things are going wrong in our lives out there, that at least we have home to go to. At least we have a safe haven, a refuge in our home. Where the troubles of, of this day's work uh, circumstances are, are out there. I can just go in, shut myself in inside of my home and things are better. We're protected from trouble, we think, and trials inside of the home. But for Anna, it was inside of her home that her trials, her agony, her difficulty was particularly felt because it was at home that Penina and her children lived. But there is yet another refuge. There is yet another refuge that we can flee to and run to. That is not our homes our houses, it is the house of God the presence of the, the, in the presence of the Almighty God. But we will look at this more next week. 
What a terrible condition she was. Can you imagine around the, the, the dinner table? A, a commentator or a, a pastor preaching in this passage, he, he imagines the scene of Penina, Anna, the children, and uh, Elkanah around the dinner table. And the conversation goes, well, do, you, uh, do all of your, chil your children have your, your food? Oh, there's so many of you, Penina says. I cannot even keep track of all of you. And one of the children asks, Mommy, why does Anna have no children? What did you say? Why doesn't Miss Hannah have children? Oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children, does she? Making, mocking her, provoking her. Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have children, to have kids? Oh, certainly he does, says Benina. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not? One of the children asks. Well, why? Because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? One of the children asks. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Anna, did I tell you? I'm pregnant again. I'm expecting another child. You can see the stress in the, in the, that would have been in that home year after year. Provoc provocation. Year on year, he went on. But at this time, in Samuel 1, at this moment, it's when things began to change. You see, you might think that Hannah is a wretch, a miserable individual. And to be fair, she probably felt like it. She felt like a miserable wretch in the midst of all of this. But who is the greatest of the miserable wretches in this, in this passage? Is it Anna or is it Penina? Because one fled to the Lord. Elkanah came to Anna. He saw that she was at the end of her tether. She wasn't eating by now. She was just weeping, sobbing. And Elkanah, perhaps unadvisedly, as so often we men can be, we ask the wrong questions at the wrong time, don't we? He asks the question, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why do you, is your heart grieved? And am I not better to you than ten men, than ten sons? Oh, he, he probably didn't understand, did he? Why are you weeping? His attempts to show her how little uh, cause she had to complain probably only aggravated her distress. And I know some of you men can relate to this. We often try to make things better and we only make it worse when our wives are upset with us. He probably was trying to make things better when he gave a double portion to Hannah, wasn't he? Oh, poor wife. I'll give her a double portion to make her feel better. I'll fix it. And then 
Penina gets even more jealous and, and decides to be even worse and more, more bitter and poisonous towards Ahana. But the good effect of all of this, and I'm not going to smear Elkanah here and say that he is, what he did was wrong because the text just not, does not tell us enough for us to make a, a decision one way or the other if Elkanah was acting morally or not. One blessed fruit of all of this affliction, one blessed fruit of all of this trial, of, of the fact that even Elkanah wasn't bringing any comfort to Hannah, is that Hannah came to a point where she understood that she would, would find no comfort in men, in her circumstances. And what did she do? She fled to the Lord. She went into the temple. She went into the, into the house of God. And she found her respite there. Archbishop Leighton, he said that God closes up the way of every broken cistern, one after the other, that he may induce you baffled everywhere else to take the way to the fountain of living waters. Whereas the psalmist says, I look on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto you, O Lord, and said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. That was what Anna was going through. She understood. Barren, burdened by her situation, finding no solution anywhere else. She goes to the Lord. So you see, she was not miserable at all. Behind every frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. She was barren and burdened, but she had the Lord to flee to. And that's what she did. And that's the lessons, one of the lessons we can learn from this passage. Are we barren? Are we burdened as well? You see, the theme of barrenness in the Bible is one that speaks about our faithfulness as well. Hannah means to be favored, to be attractive. But she was not favored, was she? She didn't seem like it. Her name contradicted her situation. She was barren. She was barren. She was without a son. There was no future prospect for her. How can a favored one be barren? Are we barren? Are we burdened by our barrenness? Do we desire to be fruitful in our own day? I was telling the story to Peter uh, in these holidays. I had the privilege of visiting two different churches in these three and a half weeks that we were out. Um, three Sundays that we visited two different churches. And I'm not going to name names. Perhaps some of you may know a little bit more. But those two churches are into completely 
different positions in the spectrum of where a church could be. One is barren, fruitless, declining. One is struggling and probably will struggle even more, looking at it humanly speaking, in the coming years. The other church that we visited is a church that three years ago, I remember asking around to a Baptist pastor friend of mine uh, uh, regarding churches in that area, regarding churches in that city. And the report that he gave me was not great. He said at the time, gave me three or four different churches, evangelical Baptist churches in the area. And he said, well, so-and-so church or this church, they are, Armeni they are Armenian, they're, they're very loose in their theology. Oh, so-and-so church, the pastor is uh, Calvinistic. He is a, Calvin, uh, a Calvinist, but the church is not. And he gave me another one. And he then t told me about this church. He said, oh, there is another church. Um, the problem with this church is that they have no pastor and there's only a few uh, older saints there. So I gave this report back to the person who was asking me for a church in the area. And it just so happens in the providence of God that uh, that church uh, I came to, I know, or I knew at the time, and uh, the person who, be, who eventually became the pastor. Visiting that church, I saw fruitfulness. A church that just three years ago was barren, fruitless, a church that perhaps had not much prospect to look forward to in the next 10 years, perhaps they would have to close or something, is now fruitful. Is now not barren anymore. The church was full. People were standing in the service because there was no more sitting space. Both Sundays that we went there, the church was... Very, very well packed. In three years, it went from being a pastorless church to being a, a church that is now considering what options do they have with regards to expanding the, the venue, the space, to fit more people in. And I think the difference, I believe in it, the difference between these two churches is one. There is one church there was someone, I don't know who, but there was someone in that church that is now grown uh, past its size. There was someone in that church that was burdened by the barrenness that they saw. One of those older saints who would not have it. Who would not accept the fact that the church was in that state and was praying. Give me comfort, Lord. Give, you, give us a pastor, Lord. Help us to grow. I want to be fruitful. It reminds me of that story of John Knox. You know John Knox, the great Scottish reformer. At one point he prayed that prayer, didn't he? Lord, give me Scotland or I die. He was burdened. He wanted to see fruitfulness. Are we burdened? Are we like Anna? And we weep. And we are, we are 
sorrowful, in agony at our barrenness. You know, the Lord says it. If we abide in him, we will produce fruits. We'll have fruits, much fruit. Do we have any? Are we bothered by it? John Knox prayed, gave me Scotland, or I die. And he was not being arrogant. He was not demanding. But he was a passionate plea that he was willing to die for the sake of the gospel in Scotland. That the one desire, the one thing that was thrust in his heart that he wanted to see was the Lord at work. Oh, we should be burdened like Anna was, like John Knox was, to pray for our own church. More, more particularly, more individually, we can learn from Anna's situation and Penina's situation. First of all, not to be like Penina. Oh, how many of us? We come into the house of the Lord. We use of religious uh, opportunities and, and times of worship. And we just want to provoke. We come here and we want. Oh, I'm going to show that brother. I'm, I'm going to show him. Perhaps not, it's not you. But perhaps it might be you. Because you come and but you're just hating. There's hatred and poison and venom in your heart against someone or against multiple people. And you want to show them. Pride. Scorn. Malice. That's what moves you. How strange it is that some of us think that there is an appropriate way. Just like Penina, that some of us think that is, that is an appropriate way to come into the house of the Lord. To come into the presence of God and, and distill all that venom. Surely in the house of God, in the presence of the Lord, we should put off all those things. But yet we come in and we, we're, we're upset because so-and-so said this that, that, this week. He, did, he messaged me in this way. And we, we come in and we just want to, to we, we're brewing that, that hatred. Oh, that we would put off those things, those passions, that pride, the scorn, the malice, the vanity. That we would put off those things as we come into the presence of God. So, number one, don't be like Penina, but let's be like Anna. Let us learn from Hannah to have peace in unfortunate circumstances. What a situation, what a providence she had in her life. She was barren. When she was perhaps of the two women, she was the most fitted to be a mother. And yet one, she that was the most fitted had no children. And she that seemed so unfitting as a mother, she only seemed fitted to ruin their, her children, was entrusted with rearing so many children. 
In one case, a woman that is God-fearing, that, is love, that loves the Lord, that her religion is not just moral and formal and outward, that in one case she receives no gifts of the providence of God, and the other who seems to be vile and so vindictive receives all of it. And I hope you can see and feel the same, the same thing in our own day. Why is it? As I, we look around, why is it that people that, are, that seem so evil seem to have so many gifts? Why is it that we see riches in the worst of hands? When people who would be much more fitted to have those riches uh, can barely scrape their, uh, make their ends meet at the end of the month. Why is it? Is God really governing everything? Is God really in charge of all of it? That's the question that the psalmist asks at, at, at some points. It must have seemed to Hannah, it must have seemed to her that God was displeased with her. But we know it wasn't, don't we? We know the rest of the story, don't we? Hannah was led to her knees. She prayed. She received the promised. Uh, she received a son, Samuel. And her most wretched situation that she thought that she was in turned into a glorious time of rejoicing. And you're left to wonder, had Penina been kind... Had Penina been a, a, a good sister to Hannah, would Hannah have went into this desperate situation? It was the unbearable harshness of, her, of, her, of the providence of God, of Penina, that drove Hannah to the throne of grace to pray, to, that brought Hannah to wrestle the blessing out of God that she so, so eagerly pled for. The very element that aggravated her trial, in God's goodness, was the, was the element that led to her triumph. A painful providence, a, a, a frowning providence that led to a smiling face. That was indeed a smiling face. The end of the Lord, as James says, as Job knew it, and as James says, the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. I'm not playing down the grief that Hannah felt. She was in a bleak circumstance. But there is a moderation, isn't there? For every son and daughter of God... There is a moderation that no matter how bleak, how harsh, how difficult the situation that we are in is, that we are in the hands of a loving God. And that this situation is only a prelude. It's only an introduction to seeing God working mightily. The other day I snapped a picture. I was somewhere in a, in a vestry in another church and I snapped a picture of something that was in the, in the wall. 
later I found out that Celia took that picture and uses it as a wallpaper. And it's this saying that is so beautiful and so, and so biblical at the same time. God's providence will never lead you where God's grace cannot keep you. Let that sink in. Because it is biblical truth. God's providence will never lead you where God's grace cannot keep you. God's providence led Hannah to this situation. But it was through, so that God's grace might keep her there. And keep her he did. Why? Because God loves to show his power in desperate, helpless, and hopeless situations. So that no one would look and say this was by the will and the strength and the arm of man. For Anna, it was a, diff, a deep, grievous, personal distress, distress. Yet in it, she was driven to pray. She was driven to pray earnestly. The severe trial of Anna proved to, this, to be the salvation of a whole people. To be the salvation of, of the, uh, uh, or to be the means through which God brought a king into Israel. And you might say, can we, should we thank Penina for it? In, humans, in a human sense, I say it reverently, you could even think about it. But certainly not. We owe it to the God who takes even the smirks, the digs, the venom and the poison of Penina's. And uses them for his own purposes, for, his, for the good of his people. Oh, let us wonder, let us trust, let us reverence the Lord of our salvation. Because this same God that was in, the, in 1 Samuel 1, 8, 1 through 8, overruling and undertaking for his people, is the God we serve. The God of all comfort. The God who behind the frowning providence always, always hides a, a smiling face. The God whose providence will never lead us where his grace will not keep us. And let us trust him. Let us still our souls in his presence. Let us trust him and let us patiently bear the cross of grief and pain. Let us leave to, to the Lord to order and provide. In every change, he faithfully will remain. Be still, my soul, your best and heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads you to a joyful end. Five, four, 